Hebrews chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne with grace, with confidence, God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. He is also, he is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and those who are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he also says in another place, you are the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. So, son, though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Sarah. Would you come, or would you pray with me once more as we come to God's word? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we pause and still our hearts as we come now before your word that in the very verses before this you have said is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, and that it cuts all the way down to the very bottom of our soul. Wow. Not just words on a page, Lord. Uh, this is your very presence. So we pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would open our hearts and open our ears Lord, we want to receive from you this morning. We want to be near to you. We want to see and behold the glory of Jesus. Would you come and do that in us so that we are changed, so that we have hope, so that we have life, so that our lives flow with love. Come and be our teacher. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Kids, a question for us as we get started today. Uh, have you ever seen or been near to or maybe even met a famous person? H? Who was it? Okay, you just know it's happened before. That's good. Anybody else? Yes. Who? You just cracked your mom up. I couldn't hear it. Take the mask down. I, I have no, okay, I don't know, I don't know how famous that person is. 
Okay, you saw a rapper at Six Flags. Man. Woo! Okay. All right. Bo. Luke Bryan. Ah, I forgot about that one. Yes. We, we were on the beach, and yes. Harlem Globetrotters. Good, good. So we were, we were at the beach. Uh, a couple years ago, maybe just two years ago. When oh, it was just during COVID. Okay, time flies. <laughs> and Luke Bryan, y'all know who Luke Bryan is? Come on, in Dade County, you got to know who Luke Bryan is. Like he's a country singer, okay? And he comes right by us, and whenever I'm around a, a famous person, I just lock up. <laughs> and I'm like, "Your glory is too bright. I'm looking away. You know, it's too much." But I wanted to share about a time, you know, it's, it's amazing to see, a, see a, to be near someone who feels like, you know, we do this with celebrities, you know, we assign such weight to them that they, they feel like, oh, the glory. So we want to be close to them, right? And sometimes there's places that feel like that. There's real famous places where, you know, they're forbidden to most people. And when you get access to those places, you're like, oh my goodness, you can almost feel the weight and the significance of the place. Well, a couple of years ago, I got the opportunity to go to the Masters Tournament. Now, if you're not a golfer, I'm sorry. I do too many sports analogies, I know. But I'm not a huge golfer, all right? I, I, I know enough to just shank one into the woods. But I, I do know a little bit about golf. And so if there's any golfers here, this is really going to hit. But, but in golf, there is one particular tournament that is like the, the most venerated, the Masters. I mean, it's, it's like... It's probably the hardest sporting event to even get into. You can't just go buy a ticket like you have to know somebody. You have to be connected even to get into this place. And so that kind of creates the aura and mystique. And so I had this opportunity to get to go to the Masters a couple years ago. And, and just coming into this place, I mean, it's an absolutely gorgeous place. There's so much history there. But just whenever you're coming in, you just have this sense of like, oh, I'm an insider now. Like, I'm, I'm coming into this place of glory and like, what are people going to think of me now that I've been to this place? And so I'm, I'm at the Masters and I'm, I'm seeing golfers kind of from a distance and everything. And then you come up to the clubhouse of the Augusta National Golf Course. And it's kind of like, it's like the Holy of Holies, you know, if, if the course is just kind of the court of the Gentiles where you can get a little bit close. When you come up to the, the, the clubhouse, that's like the really holy special place. And you can't get in there. It's roped off, but you can stand at the rope and you can like look in. You know, and you can watch these people like outside, you know, there's tables set up and you, you see these people like Jack Nicholas, and you, you see these different people and they're, they're sitting there and they're not that far from you. And I'm, so, I'm like, oh, I can't believe I'm seeing this. I can't believe I'm so close. And you want to look like in the windows of this place and be like, I wonder what's happening inside of there. Just to be near to it was an incredibly powerful experience. Well, a year later, we're watching the Masters, you know, together as a family. We're watching the Masters, you know, and the beauty. And I'm thinking, oh, I was there. I know, oh, I see that. Oh, I walked there. You know, all that kind of stuff. And my family's getting sick of that. But then we get a text from Ashley's brother, and he is inside the clubhouse at Augusta National. 
Now, let me just tell you something about this brother. So her family, they're, they're big into golf. Her, her youngest brother is super into golf. Her dad's into golf. But her middle brother could care less. He couldn't care. He just, no big deal for him. Golf's not his thing. But that brother is in the clubhouse. I mean, like selfie and like, hey, you know, just like a normal selfie for him. You know, the family all times like, hey, look where I'm at. You know, I'm at the beach or whatever. He sends one from the clubhouse of Augusta National. And, and we're like, what? He doesn't even care about golf. What are you doing? And he's like, you know, he's kind of responding like, oh, is this kind of a big deal? What? Is this a big deal? You are on hallowed ground, right? How did you get there? Well, it turns out he was dating a girl. This has been many years ago. He's married now to a different person. But he was dating a girl at this time who was related to one of the guys on the tour. She was a niece of one of the players on the tour. And so she, because of her position and relation and connection to this person, was able to come in and just, you know, he's tagging along and he goes in. Because of his connection to her, he gets into this place and it's like, what? How? How did you get in there? I could never get in there. But yet what frustrated the whole family so much is it just wasn't a big deal to him. <laughs> He's like, oh, I had no idea this was like a special place. And I'm just walking along and, you know, through all the courts and, you know, through the ropes and all this stuff. And we're like, ah, you don't even get it. Now, here's how this applies to our passage today. I think that's just like what we are with God. You know, if you are a follower of Jesus today, you have been given access that is unimaginable. Not to a clubhouse, not to a special place for a sporting event, but the very holy of holies of the Creator God. The very throne room of God. And yet, if you're anything like me, you just don't know what that means. You know, you're just kind of like, okay, but I'm into all kinds of other stuff. It just doesn't hit us the full significance of that. So we're going to see in our passage today, we're going to see what, what is this access? How do we get this access and what does it look like? And then secondly, how do we draw near and experience it? That's what we see in our passage. So we're working through uh, the book of Hebrews here. And we come to kind of the end of chapter 4 here. And... At this point in the book of Hebrews, he begins, the, the author of Hebrews be, begins to bring us into a, a theme and a concept that he's going to work from this point all the way up to chapter 11 where things kind of change a little bit in the flow of his argument. So this is really the guts and the heart of the book of Hebrews. And so he is going to focus in this whole section upon the temple, upon the priesthood upon the sacrifices that would take place in the sacrificial system and so he's going to focus on that now as we've said already coming into Hebrews uh, the author is writing to a community of believers who are probably living outside of Rome and they are Jewish background so these believers these early Christians so they had been uh, born into a Jewish community they would have known all about this 
from the earliest of age. They would have known about the temple and the priesthood and, and how that is the very heart of how they had a relationship with God. They probably would have had times in their life where maybe for Passover or a different feast, they would have traveled with their family back to Jerusalem. They would have actually been outside the temple, maybe in, even into that court, that, that, that inner court. They would have come to pray. Maybe they would have brought a sacrifice. They knew about all of that. So he is using a metaphor here from something that they knew about in their history. And yet, as the gospel had come to them, they had left Judaism and they had come to believe and to accept Jesus. But they are in a place where their following of Jesus, their committing their lives to Jesus was costing them a great deal. They had, lost, they had left literally their families. They had left what they had known as children, Judaism, and all that that had marked about their lives. And so they were undergoing persecution. Their, their, their homes were being vandalized. They were being stolen from. They were losing their jobs. They were being imprisoned. They were being beaten. It cost them a great deal. And so they're, they're kind of in this place of wrestling. Well, do we really need to follow Jesus I mean, is Jesus, does it really need to be just all about Jesus? Can't we just kind of go back to that spirituality that we've known? Uh, I mean, it, it, it really gave us a great way to be moral, a great way to be spiritual in our life. Can't we just go back to that? Do we really have to really center our lives on Jesus? And the writer of Hebrews is essentially saying, this is the, the title of our series here, Jesus is Better. Jesus is better than all of those things. And in this section, in our passage and even more that he will talk, Jesus is better than all of the priesthood. He's better than the sacrificial system. So the first thing he does here in our passage is take them back to what they know about the priesthood and sacrificial system. So let's look at that so that we understand something more about what it is that Jesus has come to do. So he shows us in verse 5 as he walks them back into this very familiar reality of the work and ministry of the priesthood. Look at what he says here. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This was the work of the priesthood. In the family of Aaron, the descendants of Aaron and the people of Israel... They were devoted to this ministry of the priesthood. And what the priests would do is that they were called to be representatives of the people. That's what a priest was. They were kind of a go-between between a sinful people and a holy God. And so their, their job was to represent the people. To come into the presence of God. To make sacrifices on behalf of the people. They would sacrifice animals. They would shed their blood. They would take that into the Holy of Holies, the most special presence of God in the temple, the place that no one could go, but the high priest on one day a year as he would come into, on the Day of Atonement, he would come into the Holy of Holies, bring this blood, he would sprinkle it out over the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant, and in doing that he would make propitiation. Remember that word that we've used? Propitiation. Satisfaction cleansing for all the sins of God's people for all of the previous year. So he would go in and he would come between. He would take that sacrifice, that blood, that substitute and sprinkle it out and make atonement and satisfaction for the sins of the people. 
He would also pray. He would intercede for them. He would come and say, God, have mercy upon them. They are your people. They are going astray, but they are your people. And this sacrifice is now taking their sin. So they were a representative. They were a go-between. They, they, they sympathized with the people. That's, he makes emphasis of that here. Uh, this is why, uh, verse, verse 2, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 2. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. So the job of the priest was to offer sympathy, was to understand, was to deal gently with the people. It might not be a good priest to go out and just beat them over the head with truth. That was the job of a prophet. A priest was very different. His job was to sympathize, was to be gentle, was to intercede for them, was to pray for them. And he was able to do this because he understood. Because he himself was a sinner. He knew weakness himself. The priests were not sinless. <laughs> they were just like the people. And so for them to even be able to come and do this, they had to offer sacrifice for themselves. They too needed that cleansing so that they could come into the holy presence of God. Verse 3, this is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. So this was the ministry of the priest, the priesthood in the Old Testament. You so, so the whole sacrificial system, and you know, if you've if you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year, you know, usually that that whole effort kind of ends somewhere in Leviticus, right? You know, you get into this place, and it's just like all these details about ritual cleansing and blood and blood and blood and blood and sacrifice and all of this. And you're like, wait a minute, I'm lost. What is this all about? You see, what that was all about, that whole sacrificial system, it was about God's way of helping His people to understand fundamentally something about themselves and something about Him. It was a way of helping them to understand, there is something wrong with me. I have sinned against God, not only once in my past, but it is in my nature. That I'm constantly going my own way. I'm constantly breaking His law. I'm separated from God because He is holy. It's one of the things that became so clear through all the sacrificial system. God is holy. He is utterly set apart. He is beyond anything that we can imagine. And so we are not fit for His presence. We are stained. We are unclean. Which is the language of shame. Which is the human experience. We all know deeply in our heart, whether you're a believer or whether you're not, shame is the human condition. You can deny it all you want, but every human being feels shame. And the sacrificial system was a way of God naming that for, them, for His people and laying out a clear process to obtain cleansing so that they could actually come into the presence of God. But here is the point of the writer of Hebrews. And he is going to work this point from every angle for the next six chapters. That was only temporary. At one point he will say, it was a shadow. <laughs> it wasn't the real thing. It was a copy. 
You know, it's like a difference of, uh, I heard someone use this analogy before. Have you ever like seen a, a, you know, maybe you're looking at a magazine and like see a picture of, of some food or something real tasty. Maybe you see a picture of a Krispy Kreme donut. My kids had donuts this morning. You might say, oh, that looks good. Would you rather see a picture of the Krispy Kreme donut or would you rather sink your teeth into the real thing? That's his argument. That was a shadow. It was temporary. It actually did not cleanse anyone. It was just putting it off. It was just teaching. It was just preparing. But Jesus is the real thing. That's his whole argument. Look at what he says in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. You see, he's saying we have a great high priest, a real high priest, not just the copy, not just the shadow. And Jesus has not just gone through the temple. He has gone through the heavens. You see, the temple was an earthly copy of the heavenly throne room. You know, Hebrews makes that clear over and over and over. It's just a little picture, just a little magazine picture. I mean, it was beautiful and it was holy and it was significant. But it wasn't the real thing. But Jesus has gone into the real thing. Jesus has gone into the heavens. He has gone into the real holy of holies. He has gone before the very throne of God to intercede for us. And He is able to sympathize with us. That's what He says in the next verse. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. So you see, he's saying, you know, that yes, the earthly priest, yeah, he could sympathize because he himself was weak. He's been through what we've been through. He's failed like we have, so he can sympathize. But you see what he's saying here. Jesus can sympathize more. Now that might be hard to imagine. I think we often think that Jesus was more God than he was man, right? We think, it's easy for me to think, you know, Jesus is God, and as I think about his suffering or what he endured, yeah, that was hard, but, you know, he was God, really, come on. But you've got to understand, and the writer of Hebrews wants to, us to really get this, Jesus was fully human. Everything that we have experienced, he has experienced Every temptation that we have known, He has experienced, yet He was without sin. So we might say, well, He doesn't know what I've been through. Let me ask you this. Who knows more about temptation? The person who is tempted and gives in, or the person who is tempted and never gives in? It's far harder to resist See, if I give in, yes, I've known the hardship of temptation to that point, but in that point, it's gone, right? But what if every day of your life you resisted? What if every day of your life you knew what it was like to gossip about another person? What if every day of your life you knew the temptation of lust outside the structures of marriage? What if every day of your life you knew the temptation of judging another person or uh, 
hurting or taking from another person? What if you knew that every day of your life and yet you endured? What would you know about suffering? He takes us that into verse 7. He says, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He experienced the fullness of the brokenness of this world, the suffering, the hardship, the difficulty of living in a broken world. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. He perfectly submitted himself to the Father every day of his life. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now this is not saying Jesus was imperfect in the sense that he sinned. It's meaning his perfection, his attaining of perfection in the completing of the fully human sinful life. He obeyed every day of his life. He resisted temptation. He has walked this life that each of us have walked and yet have failed. And yet he succeeded. He was without sin. And so the writer of Hebrews says, He can relate more to you than any human being in your life. You know, there is no comfort whenever you have been through something in your life. Maybe it's a a tremendous loss a pain, maybe it's the loss of a child, maybe it's a divorce, maybe it's a struggle you've walked through in your life, maybe it's an addiction, something painful in your life, you know the pain of that, but there is no comfort like being with another person who has been through the exact same thing, right? There's no comfort like that. Because you know, oh, we, you get it. There's a fellowship in that. You see, that is the comfort that Jesus has for us. He knows. He has experienced it. And therefore, that compassion is, flows and is expressed towards us, His people. So Jesus has gone through the real thing. He has gone into the very heavenly throne room. He has carried not the blood of bulls and goats, not the... Uh, the blood from animal sacrifices that can actually never take away sin, but He has come before the very throne of God with His own blood. He pleads the merits of His own blood. He intercedes for us. The Apostle Paul says He intercedes for us on our behalf before the very presence of God. He prays for us. Very specifically, Father, forgive them. Father, Yes, they have sinned, but look, here's my blood. I've paid for it all. Father, I've opened their way. Whenever Jesus was hanging on the cross, and the the gospel writers make a point of this, whenever at that last moment on the cross of His sacrifice, and shedding His blood, and taking our place, and taking our judgment in that moment, at the very end, do you remember what He cries? It is finished. And then he gives up his spirit. And at that moment, we're told that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. So significant. (laughs) It's taken us right back here to the priesthood. You know, in the temple in the Old Testament, there was a curtain that separated all the other spaces from the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God where His Shekinah glory dwelt. And there was a there was a a curtain there that was like so thick, it was like a couple inches thick, and it was separating 
all of the worshipers from the presence of God. It was for their protection, and yet it was also a reminder we can never, though God wants us to come near, we can never get that close. It's dangerous. Because of our sin, we can never get that close. And yet in that moment, that very curtain was torn from top to bottom. Our full access to the Father has been opened. And what he tells us here in verse 16 is that we can now enter into that presence with confidence. It would have been unthinkable in the Old Testament. Unthinkable. I mean, to come into God's presence, there would be a sense of holy fear. There would have been a sense of nervousness. Right? You would not have confidence. You wouldn't just stroll in there. Right? You wouldn't come in with boldness. You would you know, maybe inch in, right? Especially that high priest as he went into the Holy of Holies. They would tie a rope around his ankle. So if something went wrong in there, if he did something wrong, boom, he would drop dead in that moment. Well, who's going in to get him? I ain't going in there. You go in there, right? They want to go in there and drag him out, right? But he has the audacity to say that through union with Jesus because of his work, we can now approach the very presence of God with confidence. What a stunner. So, here's our question. Here's where I want to go. Here's our application. What do we do with that? What are we supposed to do with that? And as I've told you before, the writer of Hebrews is a good Baptist. He's all about good application and brings it right home into your life. And here's what he tells us. Verse 16, I mean really the whole book of, of Hebrews is an exhortation. Here's what I want you to do with it. So what do we do with that? What do we do with this truth of the gospel that the way has been opened? Verse 16, here's what he says. Let us then approach the, great, the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Some of our translations says, Say, let us draw near the throne of grace. The Greek actually says that. Not just, you can approach now. You can approach the bench. He actually says, come near. That's the application. <laughs> That's what we do with the gospel. Come near. Let me just tease out an implication of that. This, this is the real stunner. Do you see God's heart in that? Do you know that the God of the universe, that holy God that is apart and set apart, who lives in unapproachable light, as He says in the Psalms, longs for you to draw near to Him. That's His heart. That's throughout Scripture. It's not just in this passage, but it's so clear here. He wants you. He wants nearness. Not just what you can do, not just your obedience, not just your good record, not just you keeping your nose clean, not just you being a good person, not just you going to church every now and then. He wants you. He wants your heart. He wants intimacy and closeness and nearness. It's always been His longing. From the very foundations and creation of the earth it's always been his heart to dwell with us in nearness and closeness and by the way it's what we were made for 
It's what we long for most deeply in our hearts. In all the things in this world that we're chasing after life and satisfaction in that never delivers. You know, this is really what we want. G.K. Chesterton once said that the man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. Everything we're chasing after, what we really want is Him. And He wants us. He wants you near. Wow, take that in. So here's the ultimate question for us. Why don't we draw near? Why don't we do that? Why don't I do that? Why are we not just coming in for life? Why are we not drawing close? Why are we not experiencing that intimacy with Him? Why are we not craving that? Or maybe why do we go there so seldom? Maybe you're a believer where you, you do know that, but yeah. So all those other things are so much more enticing, right? The ultimate question, I'd love for you to wrestle with this question this week. Why do I not draw near more? More deeply, closer. Why do I not do that? You see, because you've got you to gotta see something before you can repent of it. You know, we cannot repent of that which we cannot see. So I want you to dwell on it so maybe by the Holy Spirit will begin to reveal this to you. Well, why do I not draw near to you? If I have this amazing access to the very presence and delight and heart of God, why am I drawing near? So let me just share with you, you know, I, Ashley and I were talking about this question and you know, if there's anything good in my sermon, it's probably because of Ashley, because, you know, I'm talking through it, and I just, she always has a way of just getting me to the heart of it, and she does that by turning it right back on my heart. And so we're talking about this passage, and she said, okay, all right, all right. And I'm like, what is it that keeps us from drawing near? She says, okay, okay. What is it that causes you to not draw near? And I'm like, oh. I guess that's the real question I have to ask. And I pondered that. And she engaged me over that and we talked about that. And Here's why I don't. And, 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 and let me just start with saying this, this is a true pattern for all of us. We all have beliefs about God, maybe even an understanding of this passage that we all get at a rational level in our head. So I would imagine what I just described in this passage is something that most of us know about. Right? If we'd have given a test on that, I bet most people in here are getting 100, right? But the problem is, at a heart level, at a visceral level, deep in my heart, I don't believe that. And I know that that's true, because when the chips are down, I don't function out of my carefully constructed rational beliefs, but out of my deep heart visceral beliefs. And those suckers are deep and they're formed through all kinds of things in our lives. They're formed through the lives that we believe. They're formed through the experiences that we have in our life. And they're deep-seated. And you've got to be able to see them before you can repent of them so that what we know here can get more deeply in the heart. But we know that, hey, what happens when somebody hurts you? What happens whenever something goes wrong in your life? What happens whenever you come into a place of pain in your life? What happens? Whoop! I go right down to these beliefs here. Right? 
So what, what is the visceral belief for me? Why don't I draw near God to God? Here's the thing. Deeply in my heart, what I believe is that it's up to me. In relationships, I believe that love is up to me. That the only way that people are really going to love me is if I've become what they want me to be. That I become lovable. You see, because I'm always doing that, I'm never actually allowing myself to be loved. Because listen, you cannot receive love if uh, apart from a place of vulnerability. It's the only way you can experience love. Is whenever you're vulnerable, whenever you're unguarded, whenever you're unprotected, whenever you're just raw, like here I am, you see it all. Now that's a scary place to be because in that place we can be rejected. But it is also the place where you can experience and receive love. It works that way with other people and it works that way with God. But when I'm guarded, when I am putting together a false self in order to get love, I cannot experience the very love of God because I can only experience His love in utter vulnerability. And that is safe. It's safe to come to Him exactly where you are in the midst of all your brokenness because His love and acceptance has no basis in what we do or anything in us. If that were the case... We could never approach Him. But the basis of His love, of His acceptance, of our coming raw and open and vulnerable before a living God is the very work and goodness and record and merit of Jesus Christ. That's why we can come. That's why we can be vulnerable. So that's what is a barrier for me. It's a barrier for me to other relationships. But most fundamentally, I don't draw near to God because I think you would not accept me here. I'm not good enough for that. that it, it can't be just your raw love for me in my utter nakedness. No, it can't be. So how do we get free of that? We get free of that by repenting of it. By turning from it and saying, this is a lie. And yet, putting all of our confidence in the finished work of Jesus and coming into His presence to experience His love and His nearness. Let me stop there and we have a few minutes. If you're new here, we kind of do this thing at the end of the sermon where we, we have a few moments to discuss the passage and how it's striking us, how it's hitting us. So let me just stop there and just open it up for us. How does that move you? How does it inspire you? How does it terrify you? How does it invite you? What's happening in you as you experience the invitation of God to draw near? Trent. So, what's happening in me is like what you shared, this terror, terror, and when you ask the question, like, why don't I draw near? It's, it's fear. Mm. And it's for what you just shared, you know. That's, I can really relate to that. But also, it's fear that maybe I don't have God right. Like, maybe I don't understand Him. Like, 
maybe there's something else hidden within Scripture in the mm-hmm. Old Testament in the in the minor prophets that says, yeah, yeah. like, yeah, oh God, yeah, actually, you know, that's not what God's like. Yes, and I think Satan uses that lack of knowledge of His Word sometimes to yeah. be like, uh, actually, you know, this God isn't safe. Yeah, right. Yeah, and so yeah, there's that fear. Yeah. And uh, I guess that's all I could really share. Mm. Yeah. I appreciate that vulnerability, Trent. And, and I would imagine that many of us are in that place. Where we just, I mean, again, here, we got it down. We got it down pat. But down here we think, no, but could it really be that way? Could you really be that safe? And so we hold back. We hold back. It's risky and scary. And a lot of times I think more information is going to help me to get there. You know, if I just study more, I'll get it. Carrie? Um, I think uh, I'm trying to formulate my thoughts here, but um, I feel like I have, I've personally just been in a season of a lot of struggle and doubt. And, and I think that sort of like Trent was saying, there's that fear as I hear that I'm thinking, I, okay, I, I know I have drawn near to God before. Yeah. I have walked with him yeah. for most of my life, which I am deeply thankful for, but, um, it just feels like, okay, I draw near and then I draw away mm. and every time I think the enemy says, well, you can't draw near again. Yeah. Like, you you blew it. Yep. You're out. Yep. Like, God's heart has changed for you. Mm. And it kind of goes back to that essential lie of, like, yep. God, like, not, believe, not really deeply believing that God, that God's heart is for me to draw near and is mm. good. Yes. Period. Yes. Always. Mm-hmm. And um, I just read in, in my prayers the other morning a prayer talking about God's changelessness. Mm. And I don't think I had, I just had never dwelt on that before. Mm. Yeah. Um, no matter what changes. And like this week, for example, this weekend, we had lots of change at our house. We had a friend to move out, a friend to move in. And it just, you know, it felt like a whirlwind. Yeah. Um, feels like a whirlwind but uh I think it was it was comforting for me and so I'm like half comforted (laughs) I'm struggling I think I'm like wrestling with that but the fact that God's desire for me to draw near is changeless yeah um and so no matter how many times I kind of you know drift away or run away or whatever it is um he's again wanting me to draw near it's really comforting yes Kerry, thank you so much for sharing. I certainly identify with that. I think many of us can. And I think the, the wrestling that you described there is the very wrestling by which we deepen in this. Because I think a lot of times, many of us, we're living out of the rational. And when you don't realize the difference between what I believe here and believe here, you can kind of have this illusion that I'm drawing near 
But when you get into that place of disruption, you see, oh, there's a, there's a gap here. That's actually the place of transformation and growth. So yeah, it can, struggle's hard. It's disconcerting. It can be fearful. But it's actually the path to growth and transformation. So thank you for sharing. I struggle to draw near because God is not safe the way I want him to be safe. Yeah. Um, there's pain in drawing near yeah. and in letting him reveal sin and weakness and bondage and yeah. um, and he's not good in the way I want him to be good. Um, yes. He allows suffering. Yes. And it's, yeah, it hurts. Mm. So I have to trust him yes. that his safety is better than what I think is safe mm. and his goodness is better than what I think is good. Mm. Gosh, that's so good, and that's so true. Uh, I feel that so deeply. Um, you know, I think really we wish God loved us less. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, kind of in the way, you know, every parent knows this with their child. Like, our children wish we loved them less. Like, just let me do what I want to do. But I don't let them do what they just want to do because I love them too much to let them do what they just want to do. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's because I love them I do that because I care about what they become. And so God loves us far more than we love us. And I think probably for many of us here today, we're at this place in our Christianity where it's not like, you know, no bombs going off, you know, no terrible stuff happening in our life. You know, we're able to kind of function in life. And we get there, and I'm big about this, and we say, can I just stay here? I just want to be not messed with, God. Just let me be here, okay? Don't, I don't want to go any further. And God just loves us too much for that. And so sometimes we're afraid to draw near because we intuitively know He loves us too much and He wants so much more for, for us. So for some of us, that might be what you come up with this week. I'm not drawing near because I don't want to go any further. I want to kind of just stay where I'm at. So worthiness I think we all especially in a crowd like this go hey you know we get that part um, but I think that's the secret that none of us really ever want to deal with is uh, why did Christ do this why how do I have this entrance into God it's just like looking into the clubhouse and go you know I've got no worth to get in there yes so I think a lot mm. I mean there's times in my life where I go God, why, why am I worthy? And, and so entering into something you don't mm. believe you're worthy to do yes. uh, is a big struggle. Yeah. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, Greg. That's, you know, w worth and worthy is really the language of shame. And we all know that. So we're, we're all carrying a significant amount of shame that thinks, I don't need to be in there. I, I shouldn't go in there. You know, if I go, some of us might think if I went in there, I'd contaminate the whole place, right? That's got to be faced. It's got to be faced with God. But that, that is the, the hard work of transformation, where we, we take the shame and we go into the throne, the throne room and we say, let your grace just wash, wash here. I need washing. But I think you're absolutely right. So I encourage you 
talk about this with other people, maybe today at lunch, maybe throughout the week, maybe roommates, maybe a family around a table, talk about what holds me back from drawing near, talk about what is, what is the deep heart visceral beliefs that block me from the Lord. Let's let this conversation where we're working out this passage throughout the week. Talk about it in community groups. And just let's, let's receive from God because this is what He... It's His heart. We don't have to convince Him to love us. He loves us far more than we can even fathom. This, he wants nearness. So we can just kind of open ourselves and say, God, draw me. What's, woo me. What's happening here? Okay, let me close this in prayer. Father, for each one of us, because of the wounds and the brokenness, the sins that we have committed, the shame that covers our hearts, each one of us is carrying a whole lot of baggage, Lord, a whole lot of fear, a whole lot of lies at the deep core of our soul. And it keeps us from this free access of running into Your very presence where there is life, where there is treasure, where there is satisfaction. I pray, Lord, that You would expose those barriers this week and that You would grant us repentance in those barriers and that we would, in confidence, take hold of the truths of the Gospel that we would experience intimacy with You this week in order that freedom and life would flow into our lives in order that you would be glorified in us this week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.